Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We have Bibles for you. They're underneath the chairs in front of you, paperback Bible, Mark chapter 2 is on page 488 this morning. We'll be looking at Mark 2, 1 through 12 as we continue our sermon series on Mark. Well, uh, as I think everybody is aware, this month is, has been uh, designated Pride Month. It's a month in which all things LGBTQ are uh, encouraged to be celebrated, and we're seeing this pretty much everywhere we go. We see it in our sports events, in our stores, in our TV ads, uh, just about everywhere we go. Uh, There's a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He's kind of a famous writer, kind of a well-known pastor in our tradition, in our denomination. He wrote an article just this past week. It was in World Magazine. World Magazine is a very well-known Christian magazine, and he he wrote uh, an article about this uh, situation. It's very good. I would recommend it to you. Um, but he, he just makes some helpful observations about this, and one of the things he says is that actually this kind of whole idea of, of Pride Month is kind of a, a brilliant marketing strategy because uh, what, what has been accomplished here is that the, the debate about this particular topic has been shifted from a question of what is morally right and wrong to a question of feeling good about oneself. That's probably very intentional. Um, pride is something that's kind of easy to, to sell, to tell people that they should feel good about themselves, that they shouldn't feel guilty, that they shouldn't have any shame. Uh, who wants really to argue with that? Who wants to actually keep people in a state of guilt or shame? And so that's kind of what Pride Month proponents are counting on, that you'll sympathize with that notion, and of course many people do. <clears throat> but uh, what Kevin DeYoung asks, and I think it's a worthy question to ask, and it's this, what, what if there are things you shouldn't feel good about? What if there are actually things that you ought to feel bad about? I mean, that sounds like maybe a radical notion in our culture today, a culture that tells us that we ought to always feel good about ourselves. But perhaps we should feel bad about some things. Not that we feel bad and shameful so that we will remain in our shame, but once someone begins to sense guilt, once someone begins to feel some amount of shame, that's the point when a person turns to God for forgiveness. You're not going to ask for forgiveness for something that you feel proud of. And so what DeYoung is pointing out is that this is a a major miscalculation. We have a a nation of people who think they have nothing to be forgiven of, but the chief benefit, the chief provision of the gospel of Jesus Christ is forgiveness of sins. That's what you need the most, and that's what I need the most. What if your greatest need, friends, today is not to feel proud of yourself, but to receive forgiveness? What if that's your greatest need? Do you know that you've received that? Do you know that your hands are clean before God? 
Do you know that your guilt in this life has been removed? That's what our passage is about today here in Mark chapter 2. It's speaking to us of the importance of forgiveness, Jesus and forgiveness. Last week we looked at Jesus and healing at the end of chapter 1, and so now we're picking up here with Jesus and forgiveness. And let me make this very clear, friends, that we need forgiveness not just for sexual sins, but for our envy and our gossip and our slander and our deceitfulness and our boastfulness and our faithlessness and our unbelief and our idolatry and our pride. And Romans 1 tells us that those who practice such things deserve to die. That applies to all of us, friends, not just people marching in the local pride parade. We're all in need of forgiveness, but there is good news for us in this passage in Mark chapter 2. So if you're able, please stand, and I'm going to read these first 12 verses as we think about Jesus and forgiveness, starting with verse 1. It says, and when he, that's Jesus, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Holy Spirit, would you please come and bless us today? Open our hearts, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so let's look at this uh, very famous passage here. If you don't know a lot about the Bible, you might know still about this particular story. One of the benefits of going through the book of a book of the Bible is, is you have to deal sometimes with passages that are lesser known that you don't really hear a lot about, but nonetheless, they're still in Scripture. They're still given to us for our edification, and so we deal with those passages. But you know, sometimes we get to passages like this. It's like, oh man, I've heard this before. I know this story. Perhaps that's the case here for you. What we have here in this story, I I think, is a, first of all, a false diagnosis about what our real problem is as a human race. Then we get to a true diagnosis, and then finally a merciful solution. So first of all, let's take a look at the false diagnosis. Let me set up the scene for you here. We have Jesus at home. 
Uh, sometimes we don't even really think of where Jesus actually lived, but here in this city, Capernaum, up in uh, Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, as I showed you a few weeks ago, this is where he lived, at least for this time. <clears throat> and he lived in a typical house at this time. Typical houses then would have been rather small, just three or four rooms. And um, because they're so small, it doesn't take long for the place to get crowded. And it says in verse 2, many are gathered together so that there was no more room. And the reason that there are so many people here is because Jesus is preaching to, the, to them. The end of verse 2 says, you might remember from last week, remember when the disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. Jesus said, no, let's go to another town so that I can preach there because that's why I came. And so Last week that point was made about the importance of preaching, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's inside his house, and he's preaching, and the place is full, and there are people outside, and they're trying to listen to know what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> then we get to verse 3, and um, the, the drama of the story increases here. And we see that there are these four men who show up, and they have a, a, a bed and on that bed is this man who's just lying there. And we're told here that he is a paralytic. That is, he's paralyzed. He, he can't walk. We don't know why he can't walk. Maybe he got injured. Maybe it's the result of an illness. Maybe he's been a paralytic since birth. We don't know that. But these men are bringing this paralytic to Jesus. But the problem is, is they can't get to Jesus, verse 4 tells us, because there's so many people in this tiny little house. It's crowded. They can't get to Jesus. So these guys get creative. <laughs> and you can imagine them having a conversation. How are we going to get in there? I don't know. And somebody says, let's get up on the roof. <laughs> and someone else says, that's crazy. That's nuts. We can't do that. Well, let's give it a try. Why not? Most houses at this time would have had a staircase that would have gone up to the top of the roof. It was common for people to... Uh, be on the roof at, for some length of time. You didn't have air conditioning, so if you wanted to get cool, you'd go up on the roof. Sometimes they'd sleep up on the roof. And so that's what this group decides to do. They go up the staircase carrying this paralytic on a bed, and they get up on top of the roof. And uh, <clears throat> the Greek actually says they started unroofing the roof. <laughs> that's what it literally says. They start taking the roof apart. Uh, the roofs of a typical house then would have been you know, sticks and branches kind of held together by mud and clay, so it wouldn't be quite the same as like removing the roof of this room. Uh, it probably would have been a lot easier to do, um, but nonetheless would have been probably pretty distracting. <laughs> Here's Jesus in here preaching. The room is full, and you know there's some shaking, probably some dirt beginning to fall down into the house. People start looking up, and they start realizing somebody is taking the roof off this house. The hole kind of opens up, and then lowered down into the room is this, this man lying on a bed. I'm not really sure what happened. We're not told. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, a rock show. Have you ever seen people crowd surf? You know, where people get up on the stage, and they jump out in the crowd, and the crowd with their hands kind of moves the person along. It's kind of a way of, of dancing. I, I'm guessing that's probably something that happened when the bed was lowered down. People put up their hands and the paralytic maybe was crowd surfing for just a short time as he was 
gently then lowered down onto the floor in front of Jesus. And so these men are successful, and they get this paralytic into the house in front of Jesus. And so then we get to verse 5, and um, here is what might be the most startling thing in this passage, because uh, Jesus says something uh, that you wouldn't really expect. But, But first of all, I should say this, you know, what... What great friends this paralytic has. <laughs> I mean, don't you want friends li- like this? I mean, these guys are doing everything possible to help their friend. But, but what is more important than their friendship is their faith. And we see that in verse 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. We don't have any record that anything was said here. There's not a profession of faith made. It doesn't say that Jesus heard them talk about their faith. Nobody says, Jesus, I believe in you as my personal Lord and Savior. It says that Jesus saw their faith. I mean, we make a big deal here at, at New Life about salvation being by faith alone, not by the things that we do. But friends, true faith can always be seen. There's no such thing as true faith for which there is no evidence. The reality of our faith is shown in what we do, and that's what's being taught to us here, what we learn later in James. We've heard many times, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So these people are showing their faith by what they do, and that's a picture of how good works should play into our lives as Christians who are saved by faith alone. But what Jesus says next is the startling thing in verse 5. He says to them, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can just imagine here the response of the paralytic. What? Uh, Can you not see the problem here, Jesus? I can't walk. Uh, What does forgiveness of sins have to do with anything? I'm not here to have my sins forgiven. That's not my need. That's not my concern. That's frankly not even important to me right now. What I want is to walk. I want healing. And yet what Jesus says, Jesus isn't stupid. He sees the guy can't walk. And yet he says, your sins are forgiven. Why would he say that? Why would he do this? And I think the answer is because what what Jesus is is offering to us is, is a challenge, and that is that there is something deeper that we all need that extends beyond our outward suffering and circumstances. That there's something bigger than just physical healing that we need. We need spiritual healing healing. That's what Jesus wants to to open up, this idea in this person's mind. I don't think Jesus is being insensitive here. It might even seem like he's being a little insensitive, right? I mean, of course the guy wants to to, to walk. Who wouldn't? I mean, we have to sympathize with him. I think we probably all feel maybe a little disappointed. How come you're not giving me the ability to walk? I mean, Jesus is going to get to that, But, but he's got something to teach here first. He wants the paralytic to see, and Mark, in writing this gospel, he wants you and me to see that what we need more than anything is forgiveness. 
It's the chief need of every single human being. This is the false diagnosis that so often we make. We think if we get our outward problems fixed, that that will fix our inward problem. We think if we can just get our deepest wish met, that we'll be happy all the day, and we'll never have any other problems, and we'll be totally and completely fulfilled. We're sick, we want to be healthy, we're single, we want to be married, we're in a tough marriage, we want a better marriage, we have a certain income, we want a higher income, and we convince ourselves if we just get those things, we'll be okay, we'll be happy. And I'm sure that's what this paralytic thought, oh, if I could walk, I will be happy for the rest of my life. Now, this is not to deny, again, the importance of being able to walk or the desire to be healed, but friends, it just doesn't work that way. You know what that's like. You've said that before, right? If just this would happen, if just that would happen, if this would get fixed, if I could get that, and you think you'd be happy, and it doesn't take long before you've descended back into unbelief and grumbling and complaining and worry and fear, right? That's just the human condition. There's a writer named Cynthia Heimel who used to write for the Village Voice, and she happened to be acquainted with a lot of aspiring actors and actresses, people who were working uh, minimum wage jobs, working their way up, and she said that in so many cases, when these people got famous, they got unhappier. He said that, she said that there's been so many people like this that were just, they were angry, they were un- impolite, they, they were frustrating to work with. They got their wish, and it didn't make them happier. And she goes on to make this comment. She says, I think when God wants to play a joke on somebody, he grants them their deepest wish. Tim Keller writes about this this way. He says, the Bible says our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. We're saying, if I have that, if I get my deepest wish, then everything will be okay. Almost always when we go to Jesus saying, this is my deepest wish, his response is that we need to go a lot deeper than that. Friends, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married, to have a better job, to make some additional money, to be healed. There is nothing wrong with that. We should long for those things. But friends, do, do you understand that your need is deeper than that? Do you get the fact that what you need is reconciliation with your Creator? That if you have everything else in the world and you don't have that, you are in a poor state. Forgiveness is what you need. You need your guilt removed. You need to know your hands are clean. You need to know your shame has been taken away. You need to know that God loves you. You need to know you're accepted by Him. You need to know that you're not under His condemnation. That's what you need. That's what I need. As John says, and Jesus says in John 6, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. So that's the false diagnosis that's being revealed to us here. A desire for something that's not a bad thing, just a desire for something that's not the ultimate thing that Jesus is trying to get us to see. Well, what about the true diagnosis? How does that play out here in this passage. Well, if we continue, we see in verse 6 that there's a, another group who is present here called the scribes. And we talked about them a, a few weeks ago. The scribes are the, the experts, the, the academics, the scholars. They're the ones who interpret the Torah. They know the Bible better than anybody else. They're highly respected authorities. 
in Jesus' day, and they're there, and they are not happy. And so here we're beginning to see the beginning of this tension and conflict that develops between the religious authorities and Jesus. And this is going to be an ongoing theme. We're going to be hitting on this over and over again as we go through Mark. It only gets worse as Jesus continues his ministry. But here it starts, and the scribes are upset about something in particular. And we see this in verse 7. The scribes say... Why does this man speak like that? So they're responding to what Jesus said. Your sins are forgiven. What is this guy talking about? He is blaspheming. So that's what's making them upset. They're perceiving this as an act of blasphemy. Blasphemy is just kind of irreverent talk about God. It's one way to define it. If you want to step it up a little bit, blasphemy can be committed when somebody claims to be God or to claim to possess divine prerogatives. And so these scribes are perceiving the situation here, thinking that that's exactly what Jesus has done. So, I mean, here's how their logic uh, is going. They see that Jesus claims to forgive sins. They know that only God can forgive sins. And so their conclusion is, therefore, Jesus thinks that he's God. And they conclude from that, that's blasphemy. And that's a very serious sin, as Leviticus 24 tells us. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And so here we're having the beginnings, again, not only of this conflict, but the beginnings of this intent and the planning and the plotting of the religious authorities to eventually put Jesus on the cross. This is where that whole momentum is beginning. And so here they see Jesus. Jesus, it seems like you're claiming to be God. But here's one thing that they didn't consider. And they should have considered it. John the Baptist knew about it, but the scribes didn't get it. What they didn't consider is that maybe Jesus is God. (laughs) If Jesus is God, there is no blasphemy here, is there? Maybe he is the almighty creator of the universe, the one who has thrown the stars into the sky and named each one, the one who spoke the entire universe into existence, is standing right before them, in the form of a man from Nazareth called Jesus. That is something they didn't think about. That's what they didn't get. Remember what I told you at the beginning of Mark. This whole first half of Mark is what? It's about Jesus' identity. What Mark is continually causing us to ask is, who is Jesus? Do I see who Jesus is? Do I have ears to hear and eyes to see? Who gets it and who doesn't? And throughout Mark, we have over and over people not getting it. And the scribes here are not getting it. (laughs) They don't see who Jesus is. They're totally missing it. And that's causing them to want to act in this desire to have him killed. I mean, think about this relationship again between Jesus and and the paralytic to kind of just bring this point home of what Jesus is saying. Uh, As far as we know, this is Jesus and the paralytic's first meeting. You know, so we don't have any record of, of uh, you know, the paralytic, um, I don't know, lying to Jesus or gossiping about him or stealing his sandals or something like that, you know, where Jesus would have a reason to forgive him. We don't see any evidence that the paralytic, at least humanly speaking, ever offended Jesus in some way. So what is he saying when he says, I forgive your sins? I mean, imagine you got three guys, Tom, Dick, and Harry. 
Tom comes and hits Harry right in the mouth. And then Dick steps in and says, Tom, I forgive you for that. It's all okay. Don't worry. I mean, what what is Harry going to say? Wait a minute. Uh, It wasn't you that got hit, Dick. It was me. Tom offended me. He didn't offend you. What are you doing pronouncing forgiveness to someone who hasn't offended you? And that's the question that might arise as we think of Jesus and his relationship with the paralytic. How, How is it that the paralytic has offended Jesus? Well, if we think of what Mark is communicating to us here, that Jesus is himself God in the flesh, then it all makes sense. Because what Jesus is communicating here is that all sins are ultimately against him. Every sin that you've committed is against Jesus eventually, ultimately. I mean, you may have committed sins and you think, oh, nobody knows about it. You may have committed sins and you think, uh, well, it didn't really hurt anybody. Or you may have committed sins against somebody and you thought, well, they didn't seem to be that bothered by it. Or you may have committed sins that you think, um, uh, you know, I don't know, everybody does that now, so what's the big deal? And you've excused it and you've rationalized it and you've never called out for forgiveness because you think it's not that big of a deal. But what Jesus is saying is every sin is against him. Every sin, all your thoughts, intentions, and deeds that are contrary to God's revealed word are against Jesus. This puts us all in a really tight spot, friends. We have the holy God of the universe that we have offended. And so this, friends, is the true diagnosis. Our greatest problem, our greatest issue, our greatest challenge is not actually gas prices or inflation or even gun violence or climate change as Real as those problems all are, they are not our greatest need. They are not your greatest need. They are not my greatest need. Your and my greatest need is for forgiveness. Because as R.C. Sproul says, every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. That is a true diagnosis of your problem and mine. And that's what Jesus is communicating here. I am God in the flesh, paralytic. You have sinned. Your sins ultimately are against me. But the good news of the gospel is, well, if we stop the sermon here and I sent you all home, we'd all be depressed for a week. But there is good news here, friends. There is a merciful solution. So, Let's continue through the text. I mean, if it's true that sin is your worst problem and my worst problem, it must also be true that forgiveness must be the greatest of all blessings that anyone could receive. And so Jesus makes this point here by posing this question in verse 9. It says, well, starting in verse 8, Jesus, he, he perceives in his spirit that the scribes are asking this question. Jesus in his divine omniscience sees this, uh, recognizes this, discerns this, and he says to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And then he asks this question in verse 9. Which is easier, he says to the scribes, to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up, <coughs> take up your mat and walk? What's easier? 
Now, I mean, the answer to that actually is not immediately forthcoming. I mean, I, I think we could talk about this, and maybe we'd have different opinions about how to answer this question. I, I think my inclination, and probably most of us would say, that probably the answer is that it is um, easier to say your sins are forgiven. At, at one level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because that can't be immediately disproven. I mean, it's not falsifiable. I mean, if I say your sins are forgiven, who's ever going to really know if that's true or not? This is a kind of an invisible spiritual thing. It can't be challenged. So that would be an easier thing to say. The harder thing to say would be rise up and take your mat and go home because what happens if the paralytic doesn't rise up and take his mat and go home? Now you're in a tight spot because what you have just said you can do, you can't do, and that risks embarrassment. And so um, this is what is called, uh, the, the, uh, the, the philosophers, the logicians call it an a fortiori argument. What he's trying to say is that if I can do the harder thing, then I can do the easier thing too. If I can do the harder thing, which is to get this guy to stand up and walk, then I can do the, at least at one level, easier thing by forgiving sins. So that's, that's the dilemma that, that Jesus sets up here. And, and Jesus likes to do this. You know, he, he, likes, he likes to have these kind of intellectual engagements with, with people. He likes to ask puzzling questions. He wants us to use our mind and think through things. And that's what he's doing here with the scribes. So Jesus continues here, and he says in verse 10, he says, you know, we don't know the scribes' answer. They probably didn't say anything. Uh, <clears throat> But he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man... Now, he uses this term, Son of Man. Now, this is introduced here for uh, the first time in Mark. We're going to see it many, many other times. Uh, <clears throat> Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term of self-designation. He, he likes to refer to himself as Son of Man. You might remember at the start of Mark, we uh, saw Jesus referred to as the Son of God. And so we have both of these terms used to describe Jesus, and so it's just a, a, a brilliant, divine appointment through the writing of Scripture that we see Jesus as Son of God, divine, and also Son of Man. He's human. He's both. And so both terms are used to describe him. But probably what Jesus has in mind here, as he refers to himself as the Son of Man, is a passage in Daniel 7, or called a worship, uh, from earlier this service, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. This is Daniel writing centuries before, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And that sounds like a divine figure to me. That sounds to me like God himself, and that's how this Son of Man is being described, and that's how Jesus is describing himself. In other words, what he's saying, again, it's just another affirmation of his divinity. He's just saying, I have all authority in all the universe. And that's exactly why he continues to say, verse 10, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what happens? It's exactly what he does. He rises up, and immediately 
picks up his bed, and he goes out, and everybody stands back, and they are absolutely astonished. And so Jesus here is demonstrating his authority. Remember, we've been seeing something about this in Mark. There was a message a couple weeks ago about Jesus' authority over the demons, Jesus' authority over illness, Jesus' authority in all of his teaching. And now we have another demonstration of his authority, but perhaps this is the authority that we most long for, and that is that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins, to wipe away all of your shame and all of your guilt. Friends, there's a lot of people that you might go to wanting for forgiveness. There's a lot of people who might tell you and speak to you about your sins and tell you that it's all okay and tell you that you ought to be proud of who you are and that there's no real problem in the things that you've done. People will approach you with mercy and they don't want you to feel bad and they don't want you to have shame and they'll tell you all these things, friends, but they don't have authority to forgive your sins. There's only one who does, and that's Jesus. And if Jesus can heal a paralytic, he can forgive any sin that you bring to him. Any sin. Test him. Bring it to him. Go to him. What is it? What is it that's been haunting you your whole life? What is it that keeps you in a perpetual state of guilt and shame? What is that? Maybe you've never told anybody about it. porn habit, adultery, you had an abortion, uncontrolled anger at home with your spouse, with your kids, kids disobeying your parents, rebellion, homosexuality, greed, lust, deceit, pride, jealousy, What is it? Jesus has authority to forgive any one of those sins. And if you go to him humbly, not in in prideful rationalization, but go to him humbly, confess to him, Lord, I have offended you in my sins, he will forgive all the sins that you take to him. Ultimately, The reason this can happen, friends, is to go back to this question that Jesus asked. I think there's another another potential answer, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your mat and walk. Uh, At one level, yeah, I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But you know what? At another level, it's actually harder to say your sins are forgiven because, because Jesus can't just say it. There's something he has to do to make it happen. And that is that he has got to go to a cross. He has got to submit his whole life to the Father. He has got to give up his life. He's got to lay down his life. He's got to hang there on that cross in utter humiliation, bleeding before the people he came to save, having suffered an unjust accusation in pain and in darkness. That's what he's got to do to forgive your sins and mine. And that's what he did. And that wasn't easy. But not only did he die for your sins, he was raised from the dead. And he has overcome the penalties of death and the power of Satan. And it is in his resurrection that we see, yes, he does possess all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, friends, go to him. Do not hesitate. Don't be slow. He will wipe away your shame. He will take away all your guilt. 
He will forgive you. And that's what you need the most. That's what I need the most. Let's get our sins forgiven and let's spread the good news that there is forgiveness for all who go to Him. Our God, we thank You for the mercy that we find in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you have not only just pronounced forgiveness, but have accomplished it, Jesus, in your work on the cross and in your resurrection. Oh, God, would you please fill us with your spirit and give us renewed joy, Lord. We acknowledge that often we don't rejoice in the gospel, and I think partly that's because we don't really lament our sins. But thank you, Lord, that you've done everything to make us yours. And we give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.